Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Um, for our guests who are tuning in, today we have Dr. Joe Alcock, who is currently an emergency physician and professor at the University of New Mexico. Um, and we're just going to kind of chat about both your educational journey, but also the research you're doing now, the work you do in uh, the emergency room, I'm assuming, it's or emergency care facility. Um, Emergency department, and that's right. Emergency department, all right. Um, but first, I just want to say you're a UCSB alum, and actually how I got connected with you is through Dr. Amy Body. You lectured in one of my classes. So how did it feel to come back to UCSB? I don't know if it had been a long time or just in general. I feel like it's kind of a special thing to be able to lecture at your alma mater. Yeah, uh, thank you, Gabriella, for inviting me to, um, to be on this podcast with you. And yeah, that was a fun visit. I really enjoyed coming to UCSB. It turns out that's actually the first time that I've given a talk at UCSB since I left. And I left a long time ago, um, so I'm in a couple of decades. Uh, so it was a, a real pleasure for me to come uh, at Amy Body's invitation to give a lecture for her evolutionary medicine class. And I enjoyed being on campus and seeing her and seeing all the students, including yourself. Yeah, it's a bit different, especially the room we're in is like one of the newest buildings on campus. Well, maybe not one of the newest, but in the newer um newer builds on campus so it's it was probably quite a like oh wow this is quite a new environment (laughs) I got a little bit lost uh, trying to make my way there but it all worked out I I did my first day getting to that class because the only other time I'd been in that building was to do wet lab work like three floors down and so I was Mm -hmm. like I know where the like key card entrances but I don't know where the like student like just walk-in entrances to that building Mm -hmm. Um, so after you graduated from UCSB, you got your MD at UCLA, and I'm curious if your plan was kind of always to go into medicine, or if it was a more of a happenstance, you kind of felt, fell that way, or were you always set on getting your medical degree? 
So when I was an undergraduate at UCSB, I was not pre-med. And I actually remember feeling in some ways uh, a little egotistical uh, uh, in comparing myself to pre-med students because I thought, gosh, here are the, these folks that are just studying all the time. They're not taking advantage of all the you know, outdoor and natural environment opportunities that UCSB and Santa Barbara has to offer. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into field biology, so I'm going to spend all of my time outside. Uh, and I, I, I honestly felt superior to the pre-med students, um, which is ironic uh, because now I spend most of my time mentoring pre-med students and I have great respect for everything that, that they do. But at the time, I was not planning on going into medicine. And in fact, I had every intention of becoming a behavioral ecologist mm -hmm. and um, doing you know, whole animal biology in the field. And that was my plan. After undergrad at UCSB, um, I didn't go straight into medicine. I went to Cornell for a couple of years mm. and I entered a PhD program um, in uh, behavioral ecology and in, in the, the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at Cornell. And so I spent two years there. Uh, there, was a, but there was a moment while I was at Cornell when Paul Ewald came and gave a seminar and he gave a lecture about evolutionary medicine and talked about how uh, we could apply evolutionary biology precepts to diseases and disease organisms. And in particular, he was talking about dysentery and diarrhea and cholera, which you wouldn't think would be all that attractive of a topic, but I found his analysis to be um, really kind of mind-blowing and interesting. Um, he was essentially saying that you could take lessons from ecology and evolution and understand why certain diseases are particularly bad for us. And that was a bit of a turning point for me. Uh, and I decided to do um, medicine and, and evolutionary medicine in particular. And at this point, there really wasn't any actual formal education program in evolutionary medicine. And in some ways that remains the case now, but there really wasn't any infrastructure to do this. But I, I actually applied at University of Michigan to their MD-PhD program uh, with Randolph Nessie. Um, and uh, didn't get into that program, but I did get into UCLA. And so I ended up getting my MD at UCLA. Uh, and I spent much of the, you know, my time in training and then in residency focusing on the nuts and bolts of medicine, because that's pretty overwhelming, especially for someone who didn't intend to go into medicine in the first place. Yeah. So that's a little bit of my backstory. But I, I did start yeah. off with an evolutionary background before I even thought about going into medicine. And really, evolutionary medicine was at the forefront, really, from the beginning. And I think that's the case now for some students who are mm -hmm. following a similar path. Yeah, I really appreciate you just transparently talking about, you know, how you did start a PhD program somewhere else, because I think a lot of my listeners are students, and that's something that they really appreciate is hearing how there are many, many, many different paths to end up, you know, in a job and in a field that you're very happy with. And lots of times there's this kind of mentality of you start something, you got to see it all the way through. And it's not that you're not seeing it all the way through. It's just if you if your interests change, you know, you have to work with that. So I think it's a yeah. really great lesson. And I wouldn't say that it wasn't entirely, um, you know, an easy transition. Mm -hmm. I, there was certain, I remember hiding my um, MCAT uh, study books from my oh. you know, colleagues that tell them I was planning on essentially dropping out of the PhD program and going into medical school. Um, that seemed kind of shameful in, in some ways. And again, this, I, I'm dredging back some, some, some old memories, uh, but there was definitely that, that opinion that, um, you know, maybe medicine wasn't as a pure of a science as, as biology. Uh, I do remember some, some of those attitudes. 
and I had to kind of contend with a little bit of that, um, at least in my own family. And one of the reasons why I wanted to become a behavioral ecologist is that my dad is an evolutionary biologist. And quite frankly, he had kind of a low opinion of uh, doctors and medical school. So I had to I had to think about all those things when I was making my, my choice. But yeah, it's when you're setting out in a career or your educational path, um, there's gonna be twists and turns. You don't necessarily need to always finish what you start. Sometimes you can switch tracks. Sometimes you can do different things. And in a way, having that resilience and that ability um, can make for a, a more prolonged and healthier career, I think. So yeah. that's, that's what I put a good, a good spin on it. Obviously, it all worked out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't regret any of the choices that I made. And I'm very, very happy that I had that kind of experience at UCSB where I was doing field biology, studying honeybee ecology on Santa Cruz Island, uh, doing oh, a lot that's of cool. things that had nothing to do with medicine. Yeah. Um, now, later in my, you know, later in life and later in my career, I can say, hey, we can we can take things that I learned about, you know, honeybee dispersal and swarming on Santa Cruz Island, and we can make analogies of that to cancer and metastasis. Like, there's all these ways to make mm-hmm. interconnections that, that actually are super interesting and exciting. Yeah, and really, just in general, creates a more holistic approach to you know everything that you do, which I think is really important, um, and is something that I want to get into, which is. Um, so you, I read online and you'll have to correct me. Are you the chief of emergency surgery or did the internet lie to me? Uh, no, at one time I was the chief of the emergency medicine service at okay. the VA, um, for five or six years. Uh, and I worked at the VA, um, immediately after I finished my residency at, at UNM. Um, so I went to, to, after, after UCLA, I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I got my residency training in emergency medicine at UNM. Uh, and then after that, I took a job. It was an academic job uh, at the VA hospital. And they are allied with the university hospital. Um, but that's where I was chief. Um, I've since then, I've switched um, from the VA, mm-hmm. another you know, minor change, and uh, stopped being chief and stopped working at the VA. And now I work exclusively at the university hospital at, at the University of New Mexico. So yes and no. Yeah. So in the in the course of specifically after your residency and forgive me because I know little about how kind of the residency to job transition works in medical fields was there kind of a moment where you said I want to work in emergency medicine or was there is that just kind of what happened because I I'm like I said I don't know much about how kind of doctors choose what field they want to specifically go into and I'd love to learn more about kind of the thought process behind that oh sure and I think, I think there are whole books written about this. Um, we could make it a topic of the remainder of this podcast, which we won't do. Um, but, you know, so at least in, in the United States, North America, we do four years of medical school training and then follow that up with uh, residency training. So to actually practice medicine, you have to do typically at least two years, depending on the state of sometimes one year of residency training to do, to be able to practice. And ideally, you should, one should finish a residency program. Uh, they are a minimum three years. Some of them are much longer. You can follow those up with fellowships and just train you know, for almost a decade if you're gonna become a specialist in neurosurgery mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but I chose emergency medicine. And I think you know, the fact that right now I'm talking to you know, an anthropologist and I'm you know, interested in things like uh, you know, basic biology and ecology and evolution. And I have friends who are you know, psychologists and anthropologists, 
um, bench scientist, biologist, microbiologist, you name it. I've always had many, many interests and always kind of pursued um, this kind of a, you know, cafeteria style uh, of approach to learning where, oh, that looks good. Hey, mm-hmm. that, thing, that thing on the conveyor belt, I'm going to take a little bite of that. Let's, let's go to that buffet and check that out. Um, so I took that same kind of thinking to medicine and I thought, well, you know, in emergency medicine, we get to do everything, right? We get to do a little bit of chronic care. People come in with, with exacerbations of chronic problems like diabetes or, um, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, we, of course, take care of acute or immediate emergency problems, people that are involved in car accidents, mm-hmm. you know, interpersonal trauma, um, stabbings, shootings, uh, and life-threatening infections like sepsis, which has been mm-hmm. one of the focuses of my, my career. Something um, we're so going to talk about later. Oh, good, 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 good. Uh, so anyway, I thought, since I have a hard time choosing uh, between mm-hmm. different options, and I can't imagine just a narrow, narrow focus on one little thing. Uh, I decided to go into emergency medicine. That's one reason. I mean, there's a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You do find, and I don't think this is actually a good thing, but you do find that there are sort of personality types or mm-hmm. kinds of people that go into certain kinds of uh, specialties. And if you've seen, there's there's a um, a Twitter personality, Dr. Glaucon Flecken. Uh, I'd recommend checking him out. He actually lampoons kind of the stereotypes of different medical specialties um, and does it in a way which people relate to because there's some truth to it. Um, and, you know, emergency medicine tends to attract outsy-doorsy people that <laughs> like to bicycle, mountain bike. And if you look in the background, there's actually a mountain bike right behind me. So I completely fall into that stereotype. I don't think the stereotype <laughs> is good. And I think that we need we should make an effort to actually combat that uh, for equity and other reasons uh, in our in emergency medicine. But that is the reality of how many people end up in the specialties that they end up in. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I think you're right. There's kind of uh, finding that balance of making a joke out of it, but also being like, this is not exclusively who's allowed to do emergency medicine. So yeah, I think, yeah. And I and think we, Twitter- in, our, in our program, we are making a more explicit effort to, uh, to break out of that stereotype mm-hmm. and accept people into the program that wouldn't, um, I guess, fit the, the mold and I, I, like I said, there, there are problems with the mold, right? Yeah. Um, if you only accept people who rock climb, you're going to get a certain demographic and you're going to exclude others. And that's mm-hmm. a problem. Anyway, yeah. but that's, a, that's a bit of an aside, uh, but yeah. it's an important one, I think. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. It's very interesting. And um, I mean, I can't, you've, so how long have you been in emergency medicine now? Oh, Gabriella, it's been a long time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you've seen a lot and including yeah. most recently a global over, pandemic. Over two decades. <laughs> yeah. And then COVID, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, are there any kind of, I mean, obviously COVID is still ongoing, um, but were there any key takeaways for you from kind of the height of the pandemic of how maybe we even need to improve our medical system or improve our patient care or outreach I'm not you know were there, was there anything that kind of sticks out to you after having quite literally been in the forefront of that what uh one that you'd like to start with oh it, any any of them are, are good and they're all kind of connected as it turns out yeah as you know biology that's the way things work mm-hmm. um but yeah just to for anybody listening who doesn't know the way that I define evolutionary medicine is it takes you know understanding that comes from evolutionary biology um, things like common descent, the fact that we all derive from a common ancestor, common ancestor, 
um, to, to, so we can build things like phylogenies and trees of life that can explain uh, how different organisms are related, and in particular, how more, more recently, how agents of disease are related to each other, so we can track ep epidemics like SARS-CoV-2, um, and natural selection and adaptation in understanding diseases. So when you apply those evolutionary precepts to us humans, or in some cases, animals that we're closely associated with, like in veterinary medicine, or organisms that we live with closely, things like the microbiome and our pathogens, um, you put the, all that into one umbrella and that's evolutionary medicine to me. So that, that's a lot, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, but I do find, I find it's, it's interesting. And so one of, the, one of the things I've been focusing on uh, during my career as a through line, and then in particular right now, is trying to figure out, well, where, where, can, where can this be a value add? Where can we, where can we really act, make a difference in leveraging this knowledge from evolutionary biology. I mean, after all, we humans and our microbiomes and pathogens, we all evolved on this planet. There's nothing, you know, there, let's put it this way. There are many ways in which we humans are special, but we are not exempt from some of the pressures that led to our co-evolution with pathogens, et cetera. So there, there is a lot to be learned there. And we can, we can take a lot um, from that approach in thinking about how we evolve, say, with our microbiomes. So maybe we'll start with that. Yeah. We'll start with the, the microbiome part. I think one of the most interesting things I learned in the lecture that you gave, and there was quite a bit of information, but something that stuck with me and that I think of is how the microbiome is kind of formed, developed, maybe developed is a better word than formed, and how specifically how a baby is born and fed can really contribute to that how a baby that is born vaginally has a different microbiome than a baby that's born via cesarean, as well as how a baby that's bottle fed has a different microbiome than one that is breastfed. Could you kind of touch on that and how that um, it plays into the development of the microbiome? Yeah. So as an anthropologist, you know that, um, you know, that the mode in which one is born and maternal provisioning, both in, in utero uh, how much resources gets transferred through transferred through the placenta uh, before birth and then uh, via milk and other other resource transfers that happen after birth. All these things are super important and how babies um, uh, develop and how that mm -hmm. that can have implications for health. Um, and certainly the a big challenge uh, for both the, the mother and baby and infant is um, what happens immediately after birth. Uh, the baby is in a semi-sterile environment. It's not 100% sterile. Um, there are some microbes that have been detected in pathological states like in, in the meconium, uh, which is you know, pre-birth baby poop, uh, but also possibly the placenta. Anyway, that's a different different topic. The bottom line here is that when babies are born, they all... all, all... We lost connection right there, but Dr. Alcock was saying that being exposed to microbes creates stress. And one way of coping with the stress is to acquire hopefully some beneficial microbes um, from mom. And some of those are going to be encountered in vaginal, that some of them are transferred into contact after birth, which we know is important. And then many of them are also transferred along with breast milk. And, and milk is just uh, a remarkable you know, evolved thing, evolved food. Uh, which appears to have uh, be shaped by natural selection in mammals generally, 
um, and in humans specifically, um, to select for specific microbes that benefit babies and protect them from um, being infected by uh, gut pathogens. Uh, and, and essentially, it's a, it's a transfer of immunity from mom to baby that involves the microbiome. So birth mode, whether you're born by C-section or vaginally, that has implications for how one's immune system develops um, mm -hmm. and potentially has, has some implications for um, the kinds of infections that a baby might get. Uh, and certainly if you're formula fed versus being breastfed, uh, especially we'll say in the bad old days when people didn't understand that milk was special and people just tried to replicate the macronutrient content in milk when they were designing formulas, you know, the protein, the fat, the carbohydrate, uh, lactose, and didn't really get the fact that there are these special proteins in milk, I'm sorry, carbohydrates uh, called human milk oligosaccharides. And these are carbohydrates that are not lactose, but they're the second most abundant carbohydrate in breast milk, they um, specifically act as um, a kind of a fertilizer, uh, a, a targeted food for uh, bifidobacteria, which is protective for babies. So really, really cool. Um, and with, listen, if you look from, uh, if you're doing a, a big population-wide study, and um, you can look at differences in individuals, whether they were formula-fed or breastfed, and you can find differences, biological differences in in, in their human biology that may derive from some of these early life exposures. Um, breastfeeding seems to be protective uh, against um, type 2 diabetes, for instance, and some mm -hmm. cardiovascular disease. It affects the height of an individual, at least in some populations where that's been, been looked at. Um, and then C-sections, uh, along with formula feeding, both tend to increase one's risk for certain kinds of allergic or autoimmune problems. So there are there's some real 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 impacts that we mm -hmm. that we see that are absolutely disease related that, that relate in mostly to this initial exposure of infants um, to special foods and special inocula or inoculums that shape their microbiomes that can have effects even decades later so this is this is exciting um, to learn about these things and uh, it, it's one of the I say that's one of the best examples of a mutualism where we, we tend to we tend to get along with our microbiomes in this stage of life where um, in, in microbiomes that are fed by these human milk oligosaccharides in particular. So that's a good Very example where we get along. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of touched on this immune function has a lot to do with the microbiome. And I know that's what you do some research on is kind of the connection between um, immune function and microbiome. Uh, could you elaborate on uh, specifically like the, the research questions you're asking about the microbiome and uh, what, you know, what you're contributing to the scientific literature specifically in that area? Um, sure. I have uh, you know, done some work with the microbiome and some bench, bench work, the microbiological bench, bench research um, with colleagues at the VA and the University of New Mexico. Um, but I'm really more of a big picture guy. I, I mm -hmm. want to draw back and then look, you know, look from the 30,000 feet and think of the big picture. And the big picture is when it comes to immunity and when it comes to lots of other features of our biology are that a, one way to understand it is whether our interactions with the microbial world and our microbiomes is one which is characterized by cooperation. I just mentioned one that has to do with these milk oligosaccharides, bifidobacteria, and protection from disease that we see in babies, or whether we see conflict. And um, we shouldn't always expect cooperation when we humans are, are interacting with our microbiomes. Um, they are, you know, they're genetically distinct. Um, and 
sometimes these genomic uh, entities have different interests, different fitness interests than we do as hosts. And where, where disease often emerges is where there are areas of conflict. Um, if, for instance, you want to preserve, um, say, your somatic capital, you know, your, all the investments you've made in your own body tissues, and those, are, those benefit you, and they make you live a long life, and they help you reproduce and pass on your genes, um, so they're useful for you know, biological fitness also. Uh, maybe in the fitness interest of a, of a pathogen to exploit those resources, um, take them over, cause a big abscess in your arm, things that I see in, in the ER. So many of the uh, overt infections and diseases that I see in the emergency room are a consequence of uh, microbiomes gone bad uh, and mm. where there is genetic conflict. Um, uh, but again, zooming out, we have, a, we have an immune system for a reason. And our immune system in general is one which evolved to promote cooperation uh, and try to try to minimize it. Uh, can't be minimized entirely, um, but that's, people have argued that especially the, um, the one, one arm of the immune system, the adaptive arm of the immune system, um, the, which involves antibodies and that sort of thing. Uh, some have argued that that actually evolved so that we can kind of keep control of our microbiomes and keep it to be more health promoting than disease promoting. So of course the microbiome is gonna have a big impact on how our immune systems react, because if the immune system is has a function in shaping the microbiome, then it's going to pay really close attention to signals that come from the microbiome. Sometimes if those signals are missing, that can cause the immune system to go awry and cause things like allergy and autoimmune diseases. Um, and I would argue that sometimes when the immune system detects certain microbial patterns and signatures and reacts in ways that we detect as being harmful, like causing a fever, causing sepsis, causing what has been described as overreactions. One focus of, of my research has been to, to really drill down this idea and say, well, is our immune system really overreacting? It certainly is when we're um, exposed to a peanut ant antigen and we get anaphylaxis and die. That's an overreaction, which is bad for us. I think we can all agree that with that. Yeah. But is fever always bad? Are all the ways our bodies respond immunologically to different diseases, is that, is that always bad? Um, it just defies common sense to think that we've evolved in ways in which um, our immune systems completely go haywire all the time in, in, when encountering different um, infections or different microbes. So that's, mm -hmm. that's been a, a focus of mine to try to figure out what really is going on with sepsis, for instance. Is that an overreaction, which is dangerous and bad? Um, and in the ways that our, our immune systems react to different microbes, is it all maladaptive? Is it all pathological? Or can we find some, some signatures of benefit um, and possible adaptation in some of the things that, that happen when we get sick? Yeah. So that's a, all right. So I just covered a lot of ground there. Um, no, so it's all very interesting. Specifically when we're talking about sepsis, I know something that I read on your blog was that there's just really no, there have been kind of treatments or, uh, things developed to kind of combat it, but nothing's really been successful in the way that it's actually stopping it from causing a lot of deaths. Um, where do you see the research moving forward in that area, you know, whether it's yourself or just in general, the, the scientific community in, in working on sepsis and um, trying to trying to mitigate as many deaths as possible, I suppose is probably the most blunt way to put it. <laughs> um, so if just kind of going back to the microbiome. Mm -hmm. If I think that one major con contribution of evolutionary medicine is to 
really look in a systematic way at how we interact with microbes, how that shapes our biology and our health and disease. And think about it in ways in which there are either uh, cooperating or alignment of fitness interests with certain kinds of microbes, or there's conflict or competition with other, um, other microbes and other genetic interests. I think that's one area in which evolutionary medicine can have a, a huge impact. Um, and then the other, other area really is this, this, this idea that, um, you know, looking at things like sepsis. Uh, in medicine, there is a systematic bias towards identifying things that happen in disease states and calling them all pathology. So fever is an example of this, right? And when you go to the doctor or you're hospitalized, you will almost invariably receive medicine to reduce your fever. And there's very little introspection among doctors about, well, why did fever evolve in the first place? And what's it all about? And so the point I've made with sepsis is that sepsis is defined as maladaptation. It's defined as dysregulation. That's built into the definition. It's a dysregulated host response to infection that involves um, organ you know, dysfunction um, and a variety of things that are, that are going badly. And the implication here is that in sepsis, it's not the invading microbe or the pathogen, which is the problem, it's your own immune system. So when you define something as maladaptation, then that gives you license to intervene. And if you find, if you find things that are, that are different in people who are septic versus people who are not septic, what we have traditionally done is we've, we've researched those things, we've identified these pathways, and we have intervened. Uh, and there was a paper published in 2014 that identified more than 100 randomized clinical trials that targeted different pathways in sepsis, um, targeting the immune system in particular, and none of them actually made, produced any um, lasting benefit to patients. There was one trial uh, that showed a benefit, at least we thought it did. This happened uh, early in my career, and that medicine was approved by the FDA, but then about 10 years later, it was taken off the market because it was subsequent trials showed that, in fact, it didn't do anything at all. It didn't help whatsoever. So what I have argued is that when you have now hundreds of trials and lots of data points, and it just goes on and on and on, that says that when we intervene in these processes involving sepsis, we almost never make things better for patients. Sometimes we make things worse. That actually gives us a clue as to um, how selection has shaped some of these disease traits. And even saying that sounds weird, right? That's not how doctors think. We don't think about diseases are diseases. They're bad. They're pathological. We think in binaries. Health is good. Disease is bad. Um, the processes that, that lead to or are involved in diseases, those are pathological. We should try to fix them. We need to like intervene and block them. Um, and what I'm suggesting is actually we've encountered microbes since day one. Ever since we became multicellular, we can go back a billion years. Um, at the advent of multicellularity, we had to deal with, you know, with viruses, um, unicellular organisms that competed with us and um, made things more difficult for us. Uh, so if life is a cooperation problem um, where our cells have to get along with each other, and now we have to also to manage conflicts with other microbes, this has been a priority of... Um, of human biology long before there were humans on the planet um, for a much, much longer period of time. And so it doesn't make sense that everything that we see, especially when we're looking at entities that evolutionarily um, have existed on the planet far longer than we humans have, to think that everything that goes on is maladaptive. So that's, you know, the lesson here is that I argue, and I may be almost alone in saying this, there's a few other people that say similar things that su suggest that 
when you try this approach over and over and over again, and you never get anywhere, and you're just wasting time and resources, and you're doing essentially at some level, you're uh, you're taking advantage of the trust of patients and their families to enroll them in trials that are unlikely to produce benefits. Um, we need to actually do something different. What I would argue we have to do with sepsis is that we need to take an evolutionary approach and really interrogate whether the things that we see in sepsis are adaptive or maladaptive. And uh, what, are the, what are the conflicts and potential cooperation um, scenarios with different microbes that play a role in sepsis? That's where I think that we're going to make progress. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was probably more than you expected. No, I, I think it's great. You have a very, um, you talk in a way that's very understandable for something that's so complex. And I think that's actually a really uh, a gift. It's very difficult to take a complex subject and connect it to everything, connect it to the microbiome and connect it. Um, so I, I think the listeners are going to a love this. I enjoyed the, my favorite thing about the podcast is that I get to learn just as much as the listeners do, because obviously I have a very niche field and that is, uh, skeletal remains, bioarchaeology, something that's very different than this, aside from the fact that I work with some skeletal pathologies and I, yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite things is getting to sit here and, you know, just learn my, learn myself. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And I think evolutionary medicine is such, such an interesting perspective. Like I'm, I kick myself that I took so long to take that class, you know, until my last quarter of UCSB. And I think I would encourage, you know, anyone really in, in any field, biology, pre-med, anthropology, gosh, anything to take a class or to listen to, you know, an episode of your podcast, the evolutionary medicine podcast, or read one of your blogs to try and understand these medical quandaries in a different way with a different set of tools. I think it's a really important thing as we progress as a society in China, actually, like you said, not just keep doing these treatment trials that, you know, aren't going to have the best success attacking it from a different point of view. And I think that it is so connected to anthropology, which is interesting because I feel like until you hear you explain this whole thing, someone might be sitting there going, what does this have to do with anthropology? And it has everything to do with it, you know? Thank you. (laughs) I totally agree. And you know what? I didn't, I wasn't aware of sort of bioanth and that that was kind of a thing or that there were evolutionary anthropologists when I was, when I was making my decision to go to medical school, had I been aware of some of the, you know, important work and, and, and research in that area, um, I might have done that instead. And I think there'd be a good chance that I could have ended up doing something entirely different. Um, yeah. Cause that is, there's a lot of my interest, but yeah, yeah of course this is anthropological, uh-huh. right? For sure. Involves, um, involves people, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> And, but it's also the big picture view. It's putting us into our you know, human ecology and how, our, how we're interacting with all, all sorts of different entities on the planet, how those evolved. So it's also, it's a, it's a complexity problem. It's a mm-hmm. systems problem. Um, and when, whenever you're dealing with that degree of complexity, uh, you're going to encounter areas for misunderstanding. And I think that mm-hmm. your podcast and you know, my efforts are a way of trying to um, cut through some of those misunderstandings. And um, there's, there's opportunities to do to, to forge different directions. And I think that's how science progresses too, mm-hmm. is you don't want to just always do the exact same thing as the people did before. You have to identify where do things just not make sense? or so where is there a puzzle and how can that puzzle be solved? And I would argue that for evolutionary medicine, that's an opportunity to, to solve some of the biggest puzzles in human biology and in health and disease. 
You're a professional puzzle solver. There we go. Well, that's <laughs> what we should all aspire to, right? Yeah. Uh, I definitely think that you are. And I'm curious to know actually how you, how did you meet Dr. Body? Um, so I met, I think I met Amy Body in Berlin. Uh, I went to, um, there's a, a scientific retreat. Um, hmm. It's called, it's uh, <laughs> given the, the name Wico, Vico as a, as a, as a shorthand. Um, and I met her when she was there at, as a, um, I imagine she was a postdoc working with Athena Actippus and Carlo Maley. Yeah, she was a postdoc. Do, yeah, had to do with um, you know evolutionary medicine uh, and some of these cooperation conflict ideas. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm influenced. So I, I would say, look, I'm I'm as influenced by Amy um, as anybody else. She's doing really important important work. But I, I met her there, and we've kept up a, kind of a dialogue ever since. Yeah, it's really interesting just to see how how the EVMED world kind of is all connected. Cause like I said, I'm definitely on the outskirts of it, but I find it so fascinating. And um, definitely, like you said, she's definitely doing some interesting research and it was super funny because I learned about preeclampsia in her class. And then literally my uh, cousin just gave birth and had preeclampsia and is totally okay. But I went, oh my gosh, I actually know exactly what that is. Wow, cool. <laughs> um, right. And that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a puzzle, right? Why would an otherwise completely healthy I'm, I'm assuming that your relative yes. falls in the category and I hope, I hope everything went fine. Everything is great. <laughs> That's good. But why would a totally healthy person uh, who's having, you know, something which has happened for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, and that is giving birth. Um, why, why does that go wrong? And why mm-hmm. is that, why is that problematic for so many people? And why do we see, why do we see this, this area sort of a special vulnerability for, for things going wrong? And the answer, of course, is, at least to my view, is that there's different genetic interests that are, that are here. Um, some that are derived from you know, the paternal genome, some that are derived from mom, uh, how those interact in the placenta and the baby. Uh, those can have important outcomes. And one of the outcomes um, that you know, David Haig, and I would argue is an outcome that involves conflict, is preeclampsia. So that's a whole different topic. But yeah. Again, it's it's the it's it's an idea that these conflicts of interests that may, might favor very even sometimes very small difference in whatever the the ideal amount of resource transfer or investment is it varies depending on one's perspective and is depending on 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 one's genes and so that has that has an impact on on things like preeclampsia um, and the same thing of course is true I think in the microbiome yeah. So my last two questions are a bit more fun, I guess we could say. Like I said, this is going to be the first episode of season three, and I'm kind of just reinventing the way I ask questions and what I think is important to talk to people about. Now, I think in this world and in academia, we all have incredible accomplishments, and we don't necessarily get to brag about them all the time. So one of the questions that I'm going to start asking is, what is something that you're really proud of? A piece of work, something you've done? advice you've given, um, a mentorship, really anything. And I think it's important to not just toot our own horns, but go take a moment to self-reflect and say, I did this, I did something I'm really proud of. And, you know, you can take a second to think, because I know that's kind of a specific question. And I can ask the other question first, if you'd like to 
it's, it's a bit more straightforward. It's what do you like to do in New Mexico that's outside of work, like your hobbies and stuff, because I like to show both sides of the work-life balance, as I've said multiple times. Yeah. Um, I, listen, I'm proud of the fact that I've, I've kind of successfully navigated the different currents um, in clinical medicine, avoided you know, complete burnout, uh, and, and really had this portfolio kind of a career. Uh, I'm, I'm proud that I've, I've done that because, I mean, honestly, working in emergency medicine uh, and dealing with all the stresses that go along with that, it is hard. Um, it's, it, it, there's, it's rewarding. It's wonderful. Uh, for some people, it can be lucrative, uh, but it doesn't make it easy. Uh, so I think that I am, I'm proud that I've identified that as a way of, um, of having some degree of success and contentment in my own career choices. Um, and then also just a, a realization that it's okay, right? I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize. That's okay, right? And we can, the, the things that I've done cumulatively, they, they have had an impact. And then speaking of that, the thing which I'm happiest about, and the thing that probably gave me the most pleasure was when I taught an undergraduate and graduate level class um, in the biology department. It was cross-listed with anthropology. The title, Evolutionary Medicine, <laughs> um, but a small kind of seminar style class that I did for um, a bunch of years on the main campus. Uh, I think that you know, many of those students did go on to pursue careers that related to medicine, either as MDs or sometimes nurses or dentists or physician assistants. So uh, I had an impact, I think, on, on a whole variety of folks and, and their career choices. And, and just quite frankly, that interaction and even the kind of conversation we're having right now, being able to do that with a bunch of really smart undergraduates and graduate students to me was um, probably the most satisfying thing I've done in my career. Well, that's definitely something to be incredibly proud of. And um, I, I really, I like that answer quite a bit. Yeah. Cause like I said, this is my kind of first time asking that as kind of a wrap up question. Um, and our final, final topic is what are some of your um, hobbies and activities outside of, outside of your work in New Mexico? You mentioned you mountain bike. Mm -hmm. So right at the moment when we're speaking, I am in Salida, Colorado. I'm near one of the best mountain bike trails probably in the country called the Rainbow Trail. And I'm going to go and check it out as soon as I'm done with this podcast. So that definitely is, that's my summertime um, way of uh, blowing off steam and exercising, staying healthy, uh, letting my mind wander, um, doing all the things that one needs to do to recharge. Mm -hmm. uh, in the wintertime, I, I really love to go cross-country skiing and as long as global warming doesn't make uh, snow disappear which is a real thing yeah. um, we do have enough snow in the, our little local mountains in Albuquerque they're called the Sandium Mountains and up at the highest elevations above 10,000 feet or so um, there there's we have months of snow and and I like to cross-country ski I find that to actually be the that's my favorite activity kind of all, of all time. That's awesome. My dad is quite into that. He was a, a professional cyclist and now he's, he's been retired for a long time, but um, he loves to mountain bike and he actually lives in Bend, Oregon. So if you're ever looking for some good mountain bike trails, they have wonderful, wonderful trails there that I hear about all the time. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. They're, they're excellent. Oh, yes. Um, well, thank you so much for, oh, actually I wanted to say, um, I will have Dr. Alcox's a blog and evolutionary uh, pot medicine podcast linked below um, so that you can find more information. If anything piqued your interest, he has lots and lots of uh, interesting papers, but also podcast episodes and blog posts. If you're looking for a more condensed um, 
more condensed version of <laughs> rather than reading maybe a whole paper, uh, depending on your interest level. And but yeah, he has lots of great things. They'll be linked below. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Um, I'm sure our listeners are going to love this episode. Well, great. And I, this is a real pleasure for me. So thank you. <laughs>